All right, we're in Romans 13. If you want to follow along in your copy of the scripture, we'll be looking at verses uh, 1 through 7 of Romans 13. I should say this. I, I, well, I shouldn't say it, so now I have to, because now you're interested. I, you know, I was born and raised in Southern Oregon. I don't know if you know that or not. I grew up in Medford, went to graduate North Medford High School, actually attended this church as a young person, and uh, grew up in Southern Oregon. I know full well, uh, fellow Southern Oregon Oregonians, that if we had a State of Jefferson translation of the New Testament, <laughs> it would not include Romans 13. I mean, I know this, but it is well attested to, and it belongs in your Bible. And so this morning, we're going to dive in, and I will find out at the end of the service if I'm still gainfully employed. (laughs) Here we go. Romans is about the gospel. Romans is about the gospel, and it is about forgiveness from rebellion. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1, mankind is marked in his fallen state by rebellion and the way in which our rebellion is handled is Jesus died on the cross and we receive forgiveness for our rebellion when we trust that Jesus crucified, raised from the dead, is our hope for reconciliation. And the the book of Romans tells us whether you consider yourself religious or you don't consider yourself very religious All humans need forgiveness for their rebellion. And Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11 is really explaining to us in in excruciating detail what it means to be forgiven of our rebellion through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in Romans 12, the Bible talks about what does it look like to be transformed? What does transformed living look like for the Christ follower, the one who has received forgiveness? What does it mean in the various facets of our life to be like Jesus. In Romans chapter 12, we've covered a number of things that we might have expected that transformed living looks like. Uh, We would expect it to tell us that it's worshipful in Romans 12. We would expect that gospel living involves service, which it tells us in Romans chapter 12, that it involves love for one another and the world around us, and it involves hospitality and uh, Uh, living in covenant relationship with one another, we would expect all of those things, and we would even expect uh, how Romans 12 sort of closes a call to a living a life of holiness, saying no to various forms of sexual immorality. All of these things, we say, yeah, that makes sense. That's what gospel living ought to look like. And now we're going to cover another form of rebellion that gospel transformation must touch on, and it's rebellion against governing authorities. Gospel transformation tells us we obey governing authorities in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. One writer about Romans 13 says this, it is only a slight exaggeration to say that the history of the interpretation of this passage is the history of attempts to avoid what seems to be its plain meaning. So as we're reading through Romans 13 and talking through Romans 13, you will be tempted to sit there and think, what are the times it doesn't apply? We'll cover those. (laughs) We'll cover those. There aren't a lot, but we'll cover those. But let's really press into the Word of God, and instead of thinking about when does this not apply, recognize how can the gospel transform my own heart that this passage 
does apply. Here's the question we're going to seek to answer in Romans 13 this morning is why obey governing authorities verses 1 through 4. Here we go. Because God gave them his authority. Why obey governing authorities? Because God gave them his authority. Let's think about authority just for a moment. At the beginning of your Bible in Genesis chapter 1, the Bible begins with this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We might be tempted to think that the creation account at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis was included to tell us how the world was made. That's not why it's in your Bible. The Genesis account of the creation of the universe is not there to tell us how creation was made. It is there to tell us who made it. Moses, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing down the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, providing to the people of Israel, just as they're entering into the promised land, wants to remind them as they enter into the promised land, full of all kinds of pagan idolatry worship, just as they've exited Egypt, which was full of what? Pagan idolatry worship. As you go into the promised land, Israel, I want you to remember this. Your God is not merely your God. Your God is the one true God, creator of all that is. There is no other God. How do we know that? Let's look at how Egypt is doing. Ten plagues later, their economy is destroyed. There is only one true God. And as you go into the promised land, there is only one true God. He is the creator God. God tells us at the beginning of the Bible that he created the universe to tell us who is in charge. Who's in charge? The creator of the universe. And he's not taking applications for assistant in charge. Why obey governing authorities? Because God gave them his authority and his authority is absolute. Let's begin before even we get into Romans 13.1. Let's start in Matthew chapter 8. I want to talk about a non-Jewish person who understood authority better than any Jew in his time. Romans chapter 8 beginning in verse 5. Jesus went into Capernaum and a centurion came forward to him and he was appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus replied this way, I will come and heal him. And the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. He said this to him, truly I tell you, there is no one in Israel with such faith. And then he says down in verse 13, to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. The centurion, as an officer in the Roman military, understood authority. And in Rome, all authority all authority resided in the emperor. The centurion knew that the emperor then would delegate his authority to various people to accomplish their tasks. And in the military, that authority was given to various uh, officers, such as the centurion, to tell people what to do. And this centurion understood that the people under him, he told them what to do, and they did it. He also understood there were people above him that would tell the centurion what to do, and he would do it. And he took this knowledge of authority and applied it to Jesus. And he said, I know who has all authority, 
God does. And in fact, God has all authority even over healing people. Since God has all authority over healing people, and since Jesus is clearly acting in God's authority, therefore, Jesus has authority to heal people. And what did Jesus say about this centurion? You're absolutely right. That's exactly how it works, Jesus said. I am operating with God's authority, and since I'm operating with his authority, your servant is healed. God has authority to heal. He has given me his authority because Jesus is the son of God, and so he acts with God's authority. What we need to understand then in Romans 13 is the governing authorities, according to the scripture, operate with God's authority. Why do we obey governing authorities? Because they have uh, lots of uh, police and army and whatnot, because they can force us to do what they want? No, for the Christian, we obey governing authorities because God has given them his authority. Being a servant of Jesus in the kingdom of God does not remove us from being under governing authorities. That was what was happening in the first century. Many Christians were thinking, well, since I'm in the kingdom, I don't have to obey Rome anymore. And Paul goes, "Uh, no, because the Roman authorities were established by God and operate with the authority of God. In fact, we might suggest Christians who follow Jesus and are being transformed by the gospel have even more reason to submit to governing authority because we, need, because we recognize God is our authority. Okay, let's go back to Romans chapter 13 and look at verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So this is a command. Let every person be subject to or submit to the governing authorities. And then he declares something that is absolutely true unless you want to doubt your scripture. Governing authorities are established by God. What is authority? Authority is the ability to command obedience and not care what you think. I don't have to tell my children to do things they want. Children, please go eat all the ice cream. Please, would you? You're grounded if the ice cream is, if any ice cream is left. No, I have to tell them not to, right? Authority is the ability to command obedience regardless of preference. What we want, of course, is governing authorities that only, only tell us to do things we want to do and tell us to refrain from things we would otherwise not want to do. But that's not how authority works. Authority is uh, authority from God uh, uh, dictated down to governing authorities to tell us what to do and tell us what not to do. And you say, well, I know a governing authority or two or three or a thousand that don't seem to do things the way God wants them to. Anybody know any governing authorities like this? I'm not asking for input. Okay, yeah, we do, right? Ephesians 2.10. Just very quickly, we um, won't spend much time in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. Uh, 8 and 9, you probably memorize this, for, for by grace you have been saved through faith, this not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why did God save us? Because he loves us, of course, but verse 10 tells us, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God saves us for good works. Is that good? God saves us for good works. How are we doing? How are we doing? How are we doing on that? 
So God has delegated to us his mission to do good in the world around us, to say no to sin and say yes to good things. Everybody doing a perfect on that one? No, but my government better be perfect. I got quiet there. So, of course, the only people God has to work with is broken people, and the only governing authorities God has to work with are governing authorities. So, yes, God is dictating and, and uh, giving his governing authority to the, uh, those who are over us, and by its very nature, it is going to be broken. That doesn't mean they don't have God's authority. The command here is we must obey the governing authorities that God has established uh, over us because uh, God has the ability uh, to, to do so. Romans 13.1, there is no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. The Bible tells us the truth here. Governing authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Which ones? The ones that exist. Well, they don't seem to be following God. God didn't, uh, uh, God institute lots of things that humans ruin. It doesn't mean they're not instituted by God. This is what we try to do to get out from under authority. We say, well, the authority is ruined, so I don't have to obey it. We'll get down to the exceptions in a minute, okay? Calm down. But the reality is Romans 13.1 is unqualified. Christians who recognize God created the universe, recognize governing authorities are instituted by God and operate with his authority, and we must settle that in our minds. Look at verse 2. Whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed. Those who resist will incur judgment. The results of disobeying governing authorities is judgment. First judgment is from the governing authorities themselves. Second judgment, when you stand before the Lord, and every single person who is a believer will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and will give account there will be some conversations from those of us who call Southern Oregon home about our view on governing authorities. Let's just be straight up, won't there? We just, the, clearly, to disobey governing authorities does bring about normal expected uh, consequences, fines, levies, jail time, whatever it might be. You may or may not think it's a right or appropriate. That's a different conversation, but that judgment is there. On the second hand, as followers of Jesus Christ, those who recognize we need forgiveness of God for our rebellion, there should be a bit of respect and fear of the Lord and say, I want that conversation with God at the end of time to be as simple as possible. And there will be a time where we stand before the Lord and give an account for how we respected or recognized his authority as, ex as it is expressed in governing authorities. Look at verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4, we shift just a little bit. This is a, I want to recognize that this language is what we would call proverbial. Proverbial, it's kind, of in, it's kind of a proverb, meaning we're about to read something that is supposed to be true, but is not always. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear for the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carry, carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So the intention of God in, a, in granting his authority to governing authorities is they would pride, provide negative motivation 
for evil doing. That you would say, I don't want to do what's wrong because I will incur punishment. And positive motivation for doing what's right. That if someone does what's right, they will be rewarded. This certainly is the reason why God establishes governing authorities. This is certainly not always the case, is it? There are certainly governments, if you can spend five minutes on Wikipedia looking up governments, you will find governing authorities that punished those who were doing good and rewarded those who were doing evil. So the intention here, though, of God's establishing governing authorities is to motivate good moral conduct. The intention of governing authorities as delegated by God is to motivate good moral uh, conduct. This is God using his authority in governing authorities to motivate people to do what is right and to punish those who do what is wrong. Why is this important for us? There's, we need to make a little bit of a distinction about how many of us view governance from a civics standpoint versus what the Bible is teaching us here. In the United States, I personally believe we live in the best form of governance that has ever existed. And what's great even about our governance, we get to gripe about it. It's fantastic. We can gripe all day long, and of course we do, right? Uh, but it turns out it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Now, that's just my personal opinion. You may uh, disagree, and uh, you know that's fine. But here's the thing. We tend to think government exists, and this is a civics argument, in order to provide for the mutual defense and ensure fair and efficient commerce. Provide for the mutual defense. We all pool our resources, make sure nobody can invade. And secondly, to provide for fair and efficient commerce. As it turns out, our government does do that. Stop. We're not going to argue about how good right now. Stop it. <laughs> Talking in general terms. <laughs> okay? Governing authority from the, the Bible, God says, those are great. Fantastic. Knock yourself out. But God has delegated his governing authorities to motivate good moral conduct. It is to motivate to do what is good and to refrain from what is doing, from doing that which is, is evil. And God knows we need restraint. We need someone to tell us, don't do that, please do this, and to motivate uh, conduct that is uh, appropriate. And that's what governing authorities do. And of course, you and I can disagree about whether or not they should be regulating one particular form of conduct or another. That's not the point. God has given his authority to the, to the governing authorities in order to motivate uh, good uh, moral conduct. Now, I want to give some exceptions here before I lose the whole group. And I can tell, yeah, somebody's in the back. I told Seth before service, somebody's going to stand up in the back with a don't tread on me flag and going to wave it back and forth. Knock yourself out. Acts chapter 4, verse 18. Disciples are called before the religious leaders. And just so you know how Rome conducted uh, authority uh, among foreign uh, places like in Israel, they would often try to leave the local governance in place. That was very different than Babylonian and Assyrians. Uh, they would just sort of scorch to earth and establish their own governance locally. Rome's tried to try a little different take. They would take someone over and then try and keep in place the governing authority structures. So one of the of governing authority structures in Israel were the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. The, the apostles have been called before the Sanhedrin to answer charges about preaching the gospel. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, 
you must, excuse me, you must be the judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They have been charged by Jesus to be witnesses. That's what they were doing. God himself had given them authority to be witnesses, and the governing authorities were telling them to not be witnesses. And the apostles say, well, you judge whether it's right or wrong to listen to you or God. They pick up the same thing over in Acts chapter 5, verse 28. They're called back in again because they just wouldn't stop. The high priest questioned them, and he said this, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you are, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We have witnessed these things, and so we're going to obey them. So what's happening here is the governing authorities have given explicit instructions that contravene explicit instructions from God himself. And all their, what the apostles have done is not step out from under authority. They are merely obeying the highest authority. We must understand they are not stepping out from authority. If the Sanhedrin were telling them to do something that was consistent with God's ways or didn't contravene God's ways, they would still be under the Sanhedrin's authority. But here we have a lower authority contradicting a higher authority, and the apostles say, no, we have to obey the highest authority. For example, the centurion gives an order to his soldier under his command and tells him, go murder the emperor. The soldier is not going to obey the centurion, not as an act of rebellion, but as an act of service to the higher authority. That's exactly, that's all that's happening here, is the Sanhedrin has stepped out from the authority they had and are trying to undermine the higher authority. And so we can, uh, it's in these situations where we're being told to do something or not do something that uh, explicitly contradicts God's instructions, then we're to say, you know, I've got to obey the higher authority. I'm, a, I'm being told to do this or not do this, so therefore I have to obey the higher authority. But what about when the government is immoral? You certainly don't have to obey an immoral government, right? You know that's a trick question, don't you? John chapter 19. The Jews answered Pilate, we have a law. According to that law, Jesus has to die because he made himself the son of God. That's a true statement. The problem is he actually is the son of God, so it's not a problem. Verse 8, Pilate heard this statement and made him afraid because he's a chicken. I'm, that's not nice. I stop it. He entered his headquarters and he said to Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. And that was appropriate under both Roman and Jewish law. Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus said, you don't have that authority. Is that what he said? That's not what he said. What did he say? You would have no authority, meaning you, in fact, do have authority to do that. Jesus agreed with Pilate that he, he does, in fact, have the authority to release him or crucify him. You wouldn't have authority unless it had been given to you from above. So here's Pilate deciding to murder an innocent man and release a murderer. Is that an immoral governance? That's by definition immoral. And Jesus still recognizes 
He has been given authority. That's a, isn't that disturbing? What should, what should Pilate have done? Of course, morally, he should have repented and believed and asked Jesus, how are we going to get this crucifixion done without me killing you? Because Jesus had to die on the cross. That wasn't Pilate's thing. So here you have Jesus acknowledging that the Roman governance, even in Pilate, was authority granted from God. And Jesus is saying, listen, you, you do your thing. You have your authority. And Pilate did his thing. So just because a government ex- expresses itself in immoral ways does not automatically give us an out to say, I don't have to listen to you anymore. The exceptions are when the government, governing authorities tell us explicitly, don't do this that the Bible says to do, or you must do, do, do this when the Bible says uh, not to do it. Why obey governing authorities? Because God gave them his authority. Here's the thing I want us to think about. When we decide to disobey governing authorities, God is not passive on that decision because rebellion against governing authorities is either rebellion against God himself or an agreement that God is the higher authority has a different uh, opinion on that matter. Here's the thing. When we disobey, God has an opinion. Make sure you and God agree. How do I know that? These aren't easy things nowadays, is it? But make sure you and God have the same opinion. He's not passive. He's not like, eh, do what you want. God does not willy-nilly disperse his authority. He anticipates as creator of the universe that his authority will be obeyed. Go back to Romans 13, verses 5 through 7. You haven't stormed out yet. We're not done yet. Why obey governing authorities? Because they are God's servants. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. No, oh, man, that's terrible. For authority, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying here. I'm struggling. I'm with you. I don't want to pay taxes. Do you, who wants to pay taxes? Well, I guess you guys are, it sounds like you guys are excited about taxes. You can pay mine. If you're excited about taxes, I'll send you my bill. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For authorities are ministers of God, servants of God, attending to this very thing. Pay what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. I want to go and show you an example of somebody who disregarded God's servant and got his comeuppance. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, we read the story about Zechariah. And his soon, um, and his wife, they're very old. They have not had children. He is a priest. He goes into the temple because he uh, got chosen to uh, burn the incense during the time of prayer. When he got in to burn the incense, there appeared to him, this is verse 11 of Luke 1. I know it's not Christmas, but still. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. Why? Because he's smart. The angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from the mother's womb. He'll turn many to the Lord. Yay, right? Zechariah said to him, verse 18, how shall I know this? For I am old. My wife 
is advanced in years. That's a polite way of saying, I'm old. My wife, she's just advanced in years. Sounds like she's really good at years. She's advanced. She's varsity at being old. Gabriel, all of a sudden, and I think we have to imagine this a little bit, but the way the text reads, you have to get it that his countenance would have changed here. Up to this point, yay, you're going to have a baby, yay. And then Zechariah, bro, old, advanced in age. And Gabriel, all of a sudden, would have, he would have got that look a parent gets when they're about to tell their kid to come correct. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And now you're not going to speak until your son is born. God gave his authority to his servant, Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God on a routine basis. And Zechariah got a little flippant with Gabriel. And Gabriel immediately says, to disregard the servant of the Lord is to disregard the Lord. Careful, Zechariah. You're lucky you're only going to be mute during the pregnancy. Zechariah failed to understand how authority works. God's servant functions with God's authority. It is critically important when we understand authority in the Bible that we do not have cavalier disregard for the servant of the Lord. And in Romans 13, who is the servant of the Lord? Governing authorities. A biblical understanding of authority uh, it should be a conviction in our hearts that we must not have a cavalier disregard for governing authorities. Because that's exactly what we see on, in Zechariah and Gabriel let him know very, very quickly that he was out of line. God has a purpose and a plan and intention for governing authorities and rebelling against them is failing to recognize they are God's servant and in rebelling against governing authorities, it actually puts us at odds with God's himself. Verse 5 of Romans 13, we must be in subjection to avoid God's wrath and also for the sake of conscience. We obey governing authorities, number one, to avoid punishment. That's the negative motive. Also, because of conscience, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who appropriated the truth of gospel by faith because of our rebellion, it seems strange that we would then immediately be rebels. If we knew that rebellion killed us, why are we being marked as rebels? And that's precisely this notion of conscience. We, we risk governing authorities intervening when we rebel against them. We also risk God intervening, saying, you aren't being transformed right now, and I'm going to help you with that. Let me give you a hand with being more like Jesus. What's the number one way in the New Testament God helps us become more like Jesus? Suffering. All this is a call to, let's not make life harder than it is, harder than it needs uh, to be. Verses 6 and 7, this is why you pay taxes, And this is why you show honor, because we are not among those who have a cavalier disregard for uh, governing authorities. Jesus echoes this in Mark 12, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. Paying taxes is our duty. Paying taxes is not something where we share in the immorality of the governing authorities. Rome collected taxes and they used those taxes for immoral purposes. Right, we recognize this. Do you know anything about the history of Rome? They did some things that were immoral. 
on weekdays and weekends. The paying of taxes to an immoral governing authority does not make the taxpayer immoral. Why do I say that? Because you're trying to think of ways to not pay taxes because you don't like your government. We don't share in the immorality of the governing authorities. They will have to give an account to God for what they do with that which they have taxed. What we are called to do is to not be, uh, uh, not be evil. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it's the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. Uh, by the way, who killed Peter? That would be the emperor. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Yay, we finally get to a verse we like. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We are called to honor governing authorities, pay our taxes as they are owed, recognizing that God has delegated his authority to governing authority. God's will is obedience to governing authorities, including the Roman emperor. We are free, yes, but we are not given freedom in Christ to do evil, that is, rebel against God's delegated authority. We'll end with this, uh, just three quick things, but one, one, one thought on this before we sum it up, summarize it here just momentarily. Is the goal of the Christian life to obey as little as possible, get, a, get away with as much as we can, or is it to recognize that God is in charge? And if God is in charge, we must recognize according to his scripture that he has delegated his, some of his authority, at least, to governing authorities and we owe them our obedience and honor to the degree that we are able to do so without contradicting direct commands of, of God. Okay, three quick things. Are you ready? On the fence on this, it seems like, boy, what is this, early service? I have three uh, observations, beginning with the simplest, moving to the most complex, giving, beginning with things you will agree with, moving to things you will uh, vehemently disagree with. Here we go. Number one, breaking the law is a violation of God's holiness. End of story. Vi breaking the law is a violation of God's holiness. Lying, cheating on your taxes, skirting business laws, skirting human resources reporting, Failing to uh, follow building codes to reduce costs. That doesn't apply to me. Whatever you might be doing to avoid this, that, or the other regulation because you don't like it, you don't agree with it. I didn't vote for that guy. Breaking the law is a violation of God's holiness and you will give account for your choices in regard to human regulations when you stand before the Lord. Just because you're getting away with it doesn't mean you're getting away with it. By God's grace, we live in a form of governance where we get to have a voice. And that may annoy you that you don't have a big voice, but you do get to vote. You do get to write to your congressperson. You get to give a piece of your mind to the mayor if you want. 
but willy-nilly violating uh, established rules and laws and regulations is not an option for the believer. Well, you say, we're starting with the easy ones. You're like, wait, it's, it's already lame. Second thing, now it's getting worse, honor governing authorities. This expression of honor is not specified, but honor here in the scripture is recognizing that governing authorities are established by God, that they receive honor, not because they earned it, not because they get your respect, not because it's the kind of person you like. It's not because of their character or their competency, keeping in mind that when Romans 13 was written, Nero was the emperor. Dude was crazy, right? He drank a little bit of water out of lead pipes. We honor governing authorities because God has seen fit to delegate his authority to governing authorities. Okay, I'll just give you my one opinion. I'm just trying not to share my opinion. So there's one of the things we do in my, in my house. I probably told you this before. The president, his first name is president. I don't care if you voted for the guy or didn't vote for the guy or don't like his running mate don't like his policies, it's President Biden, because that's an honor. It's an honorific he is owed. Why? Because God established governing authorities, and he has seen fit to delegate his governing authority to President Biden and, oh, now I'm going to get you, Vice President Harris. You can like, dislike, be mad, voice yourself, use your uh, freedom of speech, knock yourself out, do your thing. We're Americans. But honor here in the scripture is a result of God delegating authority, not a person. Think of your last Facebook post that you shared or wrote about Governor Brown. Did it honor the governor? Yeah, I'm just throwing out things to chew on. He said, don't be mad at me. I didn't write Romans 13. I told you, if I had a stated Jefferson version of the Bible, it wouldn't be in there. But it is. We're going to have to deal with it. Because one day, we're going to have to stand before the Lord, and he's going to say, I saw that post. Oh, I didn't know you were on Facebook, God. <laughs> I, okay. thought that was in a private group. We haven't even got to the hard one. All right. Civil disobedience is only okay when the governing authority forbids you to do that which God has commanded you to do or, forbid, or tells you to do that which God has not told you to do. And we need to keep in mind, God has an opinion. Fear the Lord. Make sure you and God are in agreement when you determine you cannot comply with what the government, government is calling you to do. In fact, I, I should say, I just saw on the face machine a t-shirt that's being marketed. It says, I will not comply. Do you know what my immediate thought was? You probably have already bought one. It's exactly the t-shirt Adam and Eve were wearing in the garden. I will not comply. Now, there is an appropriate place for us as believers to say, you know what, I have to obey the higher governing authority, which is God in this case. When this authority is sideways of God's authority, you know what, I'm going to still submit to authority, but, but this lower authority has gotten sideways of God's authority, but the notion of being characterized by I will not comply is not Christian. The believer's ethic is because I have been saved by grace, I will submit to authority. If The only time I can kick the government to the side is when they're sideways of God's authority. Does that make sense? 
All right, you can still return your T-shirt. Make sure your arguments about civics are, and your arguments from the Bible are kept in their lane. Let me give you one quick example. Because you are a Christian and like driving fast, when you are getting tickets, you are not being persecuted for your religion. Right? Just because you are a Christian and believe taxation should be a particular way, when you don't pay your taxes and pay a penalty, you are not being persecuted for your religion. You are being charged with violating taxation policy. And this is what believers are doing. Say, because I'm a Christian and have this opinion on issues of governance, on issues of governing authority, when my opinions aren't recognized, I'm being persecuted as a Christian. No. You're just being punished as someone who's rebelling against governance. Make sure if you're going to suffer under the government, you're actually being persecuted for not sharing your faith. Let's not conflate our political and civics convictions with our devotion to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those two things do overlap. I might suggest they don't overlap as much as we think. Why do we obey our governing authorities? Because God gave them his authority, because they are servants of God, and because Romans tells us the gospel that God saves rebels like us. Why in the world would we get saved from rebellion just to get really good at it? God, we thank you for your grace this morning. We thank you for Jesus Christ who does, in fact, save rebels like us. And God, we are an odd lot. We have so many convictions and so many opinions. And God, we, those are things that you have given us, passions and desires and points of view. And we're grateful for those things, God. God, we would pray that you would show us by your spirit how those things are navigated while at the same time being true and uh, showing great fidelity to your word. God, we recognize that authority over us drives us nuts. Would you give us the ability in wisdom, God, to say, uh, to understand when we ought to say no to governing authorities and when we ought to be willing to submit as an act of worship for you? God, we are grateful, though, we live in this place. God, we, you have blessed us as a particular people that we get to live in this particular form of government. And, and God, we're grateful for that. But God, we would also pray that you would be glorified with the gospel going forward in our world. May our testimony be those uh, who recognize your authority. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up with us as we close with a song?